The reading of God's Word from Acts, the 11th chapter, will begin in verse 19 and read to the end of the chapter. Hear now God's Word. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the Word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, were, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came, he had seen the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all with the perp- uh, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. The book of Acts opens by telling us how the gospel of Jesus Christ began in Jerusalem immediately after the resurrection of Jesus and then spread rapidly throughout the known world. It was a spreading flame that could not be stopped. It expanded in the face of opposition. In fact, God even would override opposition and use the very opposition to spread the gospel. And this should be of great encouragement to us today. Remember, we're not just reading these stories about something that God used to do. God still does these things. He still uses his church, uses his people wherever he's put them to do the same kinds of things. We just saw in chapter 10 that God had removed the middle wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, which was located... Uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, and this was primarily the ceremonial laws that had uh, been a means of identifying God's people, uh, making them separate from the world, teaching them about his holiness. And now, uh, having gone through that, this tutor that was always pointing to Christ, now that Christ has come, now that Christ has completed his work on earth and in the cross and in his resurrection and ascension, Now the gospel is spreading to all the world. The ceremonial laws have served their purpose. And now we don't need Jerusalem or the temple itself to be there uh, because now Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our tabernacle. Jesus uh, is, in fact, um, uh, our, our high priest, our tabernacle, and our sacrifice, the Lamb of God. The decentralization then of worship meant that the ends of the earth 
were now the new boundaries of the church or the people of God. The church in Jerusalem was made a water, it made a watershed declaration when it acknowledged after Peter came back after the conversion of Cornelius and that, and the church in Jerusalem said, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. The fact, uh, in fact, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, Luke's emphasis will be upon the inclusion of the Gentiles and will shift now to the missionary work of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. By the end of this chapter, 11, we see that the stage is set for that missionary expansion across the Mediterranean Sea and westward toward Rome, which was the capital of the known world. One of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, after Rome and Ephesus and Alexandria, was Antioch, which at the time had a population of about a half million people. So this city became known as Antioch the Beautiful, and it was a crossroads for trade. The roads had been built and the ship lanes and so forth, so international traffic is coming and going all the time through Antioch with Greeks and Jews and Orientals and Romans and people from all over the the known world. So it's a great place, a great hub for the gospel to be start to be spread to other places. I think we see the beginning of that, of course, on the day of Pentecost when the Jews who had come there for Pentecost and for Passover uh, were there from all kinds of countries. And, of course, they heard the gospel preached in their native tongues, uh, and they took that back. And so we're going to see churches start to crop up all over the place, uh, some coming out of Jerusalem, some because of the persecution that spread people, and now Antioch will kind of become the second hub. Um, you might recall from the immediate uh, that immediately after the stoning of Stephen, Luke tells us in 8 chapter 1, at that time, this is right after Stephen had been stoned, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed put, probably in hiding, probably, you know, given safe house uh, situations where they could fly under the radar. There weren't that many of them, but the larger number, remember there had been thousands converted. So they're being persecuted, so they're fleeing the city, and uh, that's that took place about ten years before this situation that we're reading about in Acts chapter 11. So that's about how much time has elapsed. Um, And so our text describes the missionary expansion of the church northward to Antioch, and this was done by some anonymous believers. The only one that's named is Philip, um, who we're told proclaim the word wherever they went. So not only are they being broken up because of persecution, God says, "I'll, I'll just use this. I'll use this persecution to spread the word and spread the gospel. So Acts 8, 4, and 5 says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So the gospel is being spread by believers as they as they go to these various places. In verse 19, Luke tells us um, in chapter 11, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen 
traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching the word. Uh, but primarily we see that they were preaching only to Jews. That's, they were going to the synagogues. Those were the places where people were assembled, uh, many of them, because remember these are the Jews who had become Christians who were being persecuted. So it's natural that that's what would have happened. Um, so this is instructional regarding how God can take difficult circumstances, even a persecuted church, and use it to advance his kingdom. I was thinking about that as I was preparing the prayer today for the Christians in Ukraine and in Poland and, and so forth, that here is a very unnerving, difficult, frightening uh, situation, but God's still at work here. God will use this to uh, spread the gospel, to show the love of Christ. Uh, I already know, you know several CREC pastors who have families, women and children. The men are not able to leave Ukraine. Uh, they're required to stay and fight. Um, but the women and children that are leaving need a place to go. And so here are Christians opening their homes and taking them in. And these are not necessarily Christians that they're taking in. It might be, might not be. But this is how the gospel spreads, uh, by showing the love of Christ. And so we have seen that God does this over and over throughout the Bible. Uh, he takes uh, difficult situations. And uh, we, should, uh, we should never forget that when we face difficult situations or hard circumstances in our own life, uh, that we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, keeping our focus where it belongs, our faith in Him. Say, so, Lord, I don't. These circumstances seem overwhelming. Well, they're not overwhelming to Him. He's above the circumstances. We might be under them, but He's above them, and so our faith is in Him, and He's directing the traffic, if you will. As we would expect, the Christian church in Antioch was initially made up then of mostly Jewish believers, but that's going to begin to change. It was soon not limited to Jews only, for we read, for some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that's the, the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. Notice what it says. Here they are preaching the word. You imagine, you got to think about this a minute. You know, we go around Nacogdoches, probably, if you knocked on, you know, went to every door and, and if people would talk to you, uh, most of them would tell you they're Christians. Probably most of them have been baptized. Some of them go to church. But that's not true here. This is, this is pagan land. I don't know who Christ is. But they're out preaching the word. And the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's something mystical going on here. The Holy Spirit is taking the word. The living word of God is not like other words, and it does remarkable things. So what does the text say? And the hand of the Lord was on them. That's, a, of course, a, a metaphorical way of saying it was visible. Visible things were happening that, that was evident. It would be like we would say... Uh, we could see a flag blowing and, and say, you know, there, the wind, that's the evidence that the wind is blowing. We can look up and see the flag waving. Well, the hand of God was evident because of what was happening. And it was happening that as they preached the word, the hand of the Lord was on them. And how do we know that? Because a great number believed the word and turned to the Lord. Can that happen again? 
It's been happening. It's happening all the time. It's happening right now. Wherever the word is going out. So things are really starting to happen in Antioch. And word of this now had gotten back to the home office in Jerusalem. The main church, the hub church. And I'm guessing that they were both excited to hear about it. But no, no doubt some... Uh, there were some related families, those who had fled Jerusalem because of the persecution. So there were probably still relatives back in Jerusalem and relatives over in Antioch and these other places. Nevertheless, while they were excited, there were probably there was probably a little bit of concern. Church growth brings both assets, people, and liabilities, people. So it's a blessing, but it's a challenge, and so there are concerns. Why? All of a sudden you look up and you've got uh, your church is doubled in size, tripled in size, and these are all brand new converts. As a result, they decided to send a delegation to Antioch to check things out, to offer them some encouragement. And so instead of an apostle, they sent Barnabas as he seemed to be the perfect guy for the job. We first met Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. Uh, verses 36 and 37, and, and we read there, and Joseph, that was his given name, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles. So Barnabas basically is a nickname given to him by the apostles. His name was Joseph, but the, the, the apostles just called him Barnabas. Uh, why? Because translated, it means son of encouragement. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, still reading from the text, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Remember that in Acts chapter 4 where everybody sold land and it says Barnabas was one of these guys. He's a businessman. He had property. He went and sold it and gave the money to help the poor. So he already has this reputation, so much so that he's gained a nickname, uh, the son of encouragement. Um, and he lets us, again, lets us know that he had been one of the landowners. Barnabas was also, by the way, the one who introduced Saul to the apostles. When, when Saul came to Jerusalem after his conversion, they were leery of him. He'd been executing Christians. Um, and they weren't so sure about letting this guy in. And Barnabas is the one who will basically go before Saul and introduce him and say to the apostles, he's okay. Um, and so they, they accepted Barnabas's recommendation. After a short time with the church in Antioch, uh, he's gone on this mission here to check them out. The grace of God was evident to Barnabas, uh, which made him glad. And so it turns out that the encourager was encouraged as well. And as a result, it says in verse 23, he encouraged them all with Purpose uh, that that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. So he was excited about what had happened, and he said, "You know, now let me. I want to encourage you to. You've got some things to do. You're brand new Christians. We, we've got some some things you need to do to grow and to make progress." Um, and so um, Luke had already mentioned in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was on them, and, and a great many believed. In other words, there was that visible evidence. And so now Luke comments in passing on the character of Barnabas, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. 
And again, he emphasizes uh, the Lord's work. And it appears that the needs of this young and growing church were very evident to Barnabas. And the first person he thought of was Saul. Remember, he had been with Saul. He introduced Saul to the apostles. He'd seen Saul, and he knew something of his abilities and gifts. And so in verse 25, it says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus. That's where we left Paul the last time we saw him, uh, you recall. Um, uh, Last time we heard of Saul, he was being lowered in a basket in Damascus and made his way uh, to Jerusalem, where he was still in danger. And then he headed out to Caesarea, and then he set off to his hometown of Tarsus. So it's been about ten years. Besides making tents and reading, I would really love to know what Saul was doing during those ten years. I presume he was building a church, uh, teaching the Word, doing all those things. But sometimes we lose track of this the, the time frame here. So for 10 years, he's not really been on the scene or in the story of Acts, but he's about to be. Um, Barnabas recognized the need of the Antioch church and the greater gifts of Saul and made it his mission to find Saul and to persuade him to come back with him to Antioch. They need you. They really need what you have to offer them. And so the mission was accomplished, verse 26 And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so Barnabas is going to kind of fade into Saul's shadow. Derek Thomas commented, he said, soon it will be, soon it will no longer be Barnabas and Saul, which is the way it's listed in Acts 11.30, 12.25, and 13.2, but it will become Paul and Barnabas, Acts 13, 43, 46, and 50. The light will shine on Paul rather than Barnabas to a point that is, that is all the more significant in the passage before us as we discover that it was Barnabas's decision to seek out Saul of Tarsus. So the next thing a church full of new converts needs is doctrinal instruction. Verse 26, so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church, that is Barnabas and Saul, and taught a great many people. Paul will later write to Timothy that he hoped to come visit him so that you might know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So he's doing the same kind of thing here in Antioch. It's the same idea that drove Saul and Barnabas to instruct this young church. They need to know the Bible, they need to know doctrine, and they also need to be exhorted in the faith. There was no New Testament at this time, and therefore oral teaching was even more essential. They didn't have a bookstore. They didn't have Bibles, or certainly didn't have New Testament. And so they here they are giving direct instruction. Uh, Professor John Frame says that the Bible makes little distinction between preaching and teaching, and that the focus of the pulpit ministry should be more on the edification and encouragement of believers. And I agree with that assessment. That that's the primary use of the pulpit, is to, to be an encouragement and to edify, to build up believers. Uh, most of the preaching we see in the Bible is gospel preaching to the unconverted. 
We already read that Barnabas encouraged them and all, uh, that again, that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Now, it was in this context that the believers in Antioch were first called Christians. Previously, Luke has described them uh, as disciples, as saints, as brethren, as those being saved, as the people of the way. This term Christian is used on two other occasions in the Bible. When Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And again, when Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So it seems that it was those outside the church that came up with the term Christian. I don't know that it was necessarily derogatory. It just we inevitably seek labels to identify people. But the point is, they were identifiable. They were distinct, set apart, or as the scriptures will refer to us as a peculiar people, zealous for good works. They were distinguished and recognized because of their beliefs and behavior. And so let me ask you, how long would it take for those outside the church to identify you as a Christian? Five minutes? Five days, five months, never? Are you a Christ follower? Not do you go to church. But these people were distinct enough that they got their own label, their own identity. So I want to talk a bit here about first century culture versus our current culture. How can the church survive and even thrive in a secular culture like ours? How did the church do it in the first century? How has it done it for 2,000 years? How has it gone into pagan cultures and transformed those cultures? I want you to look closely at what happened in Antioch, a completely pagan Roman city, The Christian community stood out to such a degree that the unbelievers took notice. There was a stark difference. A clear choice had to be made. And Peter will write later, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You ought to be so distinct, so clear, so set apart from our culture. Now, do I mean that in every single way? No, I don't. Paul became all things to all men. We're not trying to just be weirdos. That's not the point. That would be missing the point. I do think there have been Christians who do that. We just want to make ourselves completely at odds with everything. There is common grace. But when it comes to the ethical issues, when it comes to our behavior, that's what Peter was speaking about. When it comes to our behavior, we are above reproach. We are not like them at all. Thus, the metaphors of light and dark Life and death. 
When you walk out of these doors or the doors of your house, you represent Jesus Christ. You're part of his body. You're the part of Jesus that the rest of the world sees. You represent him. You represent this church. And if you're from a Christian family, you represent your family. At Antioch in the first century under conditions far worse than we have, these believers acted like followers of Christ and they deserved the name Christian. Francis Schaeffer wrote, uh, in the church at Antioch, the Christians included Jews and Gentiles and reached all the way from Herod's foster brother to the slaves and the naturally proud Greek Christian Gentiles of Macedonia showed a practical concern for the material needs of the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. The observable and practical love among true Christians that the world has a right to be able to observe in our day certainly should cut without reservation across such lines as language, nationalities, national frontiers, younger and older, colors of skin, levels of education and economics, accent, line of birth, the class system in any particular society, dress, short hair, long hair, the wearing of shoes, the non-wearing of shoes, cultural differentiations, and the more traditional and less traditional forms of worship. Amen. He goes on to say, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains around their necks, even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church until Jesus comes back, and that mark is love among Christians. As Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are to show this love as an essential part of our witness. But more importantly, because God is love, we are called to godliness and godlikeness in the world. The Apostle John puts this in challenging terms, writing in his first epistle, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God For God is love. Loving others is an outflowing of our relationship with God. It is how we show our gratitude for his love. We love because he first loved us. Love is always expressed in concrete actions, in sacrificial living, and in the close of Acts 11, we see this demonstrated. Let's read again verses 27 through 30. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus 
stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So that's the situation. There's been a prophecy here that there's a famine coming. Reminds me of Joseph, right? Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. The body of Christ, which is the church, is the primary means whereby Jesus meets the needs of his people. When the needs of the Judean church were made known to the Christians in Antioch through a revelation from the Spirit to the uh, the prophet Agabus, the primary Greek church in Antioch, primarily Greek, not Jewish, resolved to take up an offering for the mainly Jewish church in Judea. This was a lovely picture of the provision of Jesus for his church and the unity and the love between Christians and local churches, regardless of race, ethnicity, or nationality. Remember, that had, been, had divided them for centuries. We saw that break, being broken down in chapter 10 with the conversion of Cornelius and Peter going into Cornelius' house to eat. We are currently engaged in this kind of help for the church in, in Uzbek with a special love offering that we've been taking up. And we will likely be moving to help our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Poland and Hungary in the days ahead. And so I want to conclude today by noticing four things about this kind of generosity. First, in verse 29, they gave willingly and deliberately. Once the need was known, the disciples in Antioch determined or decided that they would take up a relief offering. In other words, knowing the need, they resolved to be generous. And notice that the determination was both corporate, because it says the disciples... And individual, because it says each. So one like 10 out of 100. No, the group did it. And there's a lesson here that I'll save for another day to expand on. But you're part of something bigger than you. This isn't just about you. You're part of something bigger. As we'll see in a minute, it's proportional. But don't always assume that those ten people over there will take care of this. Therefore, I don't have to. We're doing it, so that means you're doing it. That's a lesson, by the way. Go back to my child training class this morning. It's a lesson you ought to be teaching your children all the time. No, this is something we are doing, and you're part of we. You don't get to just go do your own thing. Anyway, another time. The greatest motivator for generosity is love, which is self-sacrifice. We are always generous toward what we love, right? How do we know that? Well, we love ourselves a lot. And I think that's why God told us to love our neighbors as ourselves. If you just love everybody else the way you love you, then you'll be generous. 
God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loved the church and gave Himself for her, His bride, and so in imitation of His great love for us, we too love the brethren. Second, Again, verse 29, they gave proportionally. God requires us all to tithe. In fact, I think the better way to word it is to call it his tithe and our, then we'd say his tithe and our offerings. Those are separate things. So everybody tithes. I won't turn this into a tithing sermon, but I will make a footnote here. Every one of you are already tithing. So take that 10% and Ask yourself, who am I tithing it to? That's your God. So is it Yahweh? Is it the Lord our God? He says, these are my tithes. Malachi, why are you robbing me? How are we robbing you? You're robbing me in tithes. That belongs to me. So that's his. But then offerings are something else. They're over and above. They're... Free will offerings. He provides opportunities to give in addition to that, to those tithes, and, and those, um, who, excuse me, addition to that, and those he gives would be, this would be proportional to our ability. If you have a little, give a little. If you have a lot, give a lot. Literally, according to how they prospered. We, meaning every one of you and me, are the most prosperous people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. Our poorest among us is still among the most prosperous who have ever lived on the face of the earth. Everything we have comes from God. We are God's managers of what he gives us. God provides for us that we may live and care for our families And he also blesses us in ways that allow us to be the instruments for the care of his people. That's a privilege. So to summarize, you know, there would be people who could give thousands, and then there are some people, some children, who can give a quarter. And the Bible teaches us about both of those. So second, give proportionally. First, uh, give willingly um, and deliberately. And third, they gave purposely. Acts 11.29. Again, this was not a general financial support, but rather it was to meet a particular or a special need. In this case, it was to provide relief for the poor. Uh, In this famine, we do some of this same kind of thing. For example, even in our annual budget as we budget missions giving. So some of that can be planned ahead, and some of that comes out of our... We tithe on our tithe as a church to help support some of those situations. At other times, circumstances call for something more spontaneous and immediate, and that's what we've been doing with the Uzbek church and helping them with a building and what we may be doing in the days ahead with others who have special needs. And fourth, Acts 11.30, they gave wisely. They weren't just handing out checks and handing out cash here and there uh, as it suited them. It says the Christians in Antioch really gave with accountability. They were not individually collecting money, but 
but rather recognize the wisdom of giving it through the church, through the church leaders. They wisely chose trusted men, Paul and Barnabas, uh, to take the offering to Jerusalem. We now have PayPal, ways of transferring money safely and so forth. But here we needed couriers. We took trusted men. And it says that Paul and Barnabas wisely delivered the offering to the elders of the church in Jerusalem, not just anyone. Uh, Again, we heard uh, in one of the letters I got, uh, one of the organizations in our denomination will be collecting money for Eastern Europe in this situation. And they say, we want to do it this way and handle it through this central organization and work with our pastors over there to evaluate the actual needs to make sure the money's going. We want to be responsible with this, not just sling money at something. Leaders are in a position of public trust, but they are also in a position of seeing the big picture. Of course, I know there are corrupt leaders. That's a separate question. That's a sin. That's an abuse of authority and power, and that's why you should always go with trusted people. Um, I want you to... Thank, I want to thank the saints of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church for your amazing generosity over the years. Your faithfulness in giving God his tithes, along with your free will and love offerings um, for special causes, large and small gifts alike, is a genuine demonstration of your love for God's people. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes we haven't seen their faces. We may never see their faces. But you know, right, that you are a beneficiary of other people who gave without seeing your face and prayed for you without knowing who you were. Maybe it was your grandmother, your great-grandmother, or um, a neighbor, somebody you've long forgotten about who called your name who reached out to help your family or to help you or to provide for you in some way or the gifts that are given to the church to provide you a place to worship and grow before God and to raise your family and to have friends and safety. And a good example of what we got when there's turmoil in the world, people turn to the church for refuge, for sanctuary. Proverbs 19:17, He who has pity on the poor... Lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Give, Jesus said, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will be put back into your bosom, your heart. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Let's pray. Glorious Father, thank you for dispersing your people to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. For we, like most of the world, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, we who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Lord, grant us boldness for Christ's sake that we too, might uphold the legacy of taking your word wherever we go. May all who know us know without a doubt and in short order 
that we are followers of Christ, that we are indeed Christians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those believers who found themselves in Antioch went to work speaking to others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could you keep that to yourself? How could you keep the best news in the world to yourself? They were on a mission, and we share that exact same mission. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, remarked on what an extraordinary thing it is to live among those in whom eternal destinies are being worked out. He says, The dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals with whom we joke, work, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The most powerful force in the lives of such creatures made in God's image is love. And I'm not talking about sappy, sentimental, syrupy stuff, but real love. So what we say is important and what we do is powerful. Some of you are true followers of Jesus. You want to go where he goes. You want to do what he says to do. And though you might stumble along the way, you are definitely in the way. There are others who long to be part of the world, or Egypt, or like Lot's wife, your eyes are really for Sodom. You would prefer to drink from a different cup. This table is a blessing for those who come to it in a worthy manner. It is a curse. It is an actual judgment for those who take it lightly. And God will not be mocked. 1 Corinthians 11, 27, 32 will set the table for us today. Therefore, whoever eats this bread... And drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or die. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And so we come to the table again to remember who he is and what he's done and who we are and why we're here. 
O Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill us with bold and courageous faith that we might trust you and move. Grant us to see that our earthly hope is in the gospel of Christ, that we might act now to build and advance your kingdom. Enable us to obey your call, that we might actively evangelize the nations. And so we pledge to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, indeed to teach men and nations all things whatsoever you have commanded. The nations weary themselves in vain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen.